welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I am Sean Baby. I'm AP Andy. And we are joined by phone today by John, aka the Lit Crit Guy, who is an academic and writer from Northern England. And you can find his work at patreon.com slash the Lit Crit Guy. Hi, John. Hey, thank you so much for having me on the pod. Thanks so much for coming. Um, we were really excited by the Rev Left Radio uh, episode you did on Gothic Marxism. And I think that the way that we all met was through Brett in general. Um, he kind of turned on to the Antifada, so we're super uh, thankful to Brett as always. And we yeah, are. Yeah, shout a, out to Brett. We out. are a goth socialist podcast, as we said during the Jake Flores episode, so it's especially up our alley. Uh, yeah, I, uh, for people who maybe don't know who I am or what I do, I am an academic. I research uh, the Gothic in all of its forms from the 19th century up to the present. And at the moment, I'm especially interested in how the gothic and horror intersects with uh, leftist politics which is what brett had me on to talk about and which is what hopefully we can talk about today we are gonna talk so much about it because that is extremely in our wheelhouse hell yeah we're gonna flesh out some of the things in uh, brett's episode that could use fleshing out and denounce him as a uh, mlm no i'm just <laughs> kidding we're not gonna do that we love brett um we should also mention people are going to be listening to this episode on Halloween. Ooh, so it's especially spooky. seasonal and topical and festive. And we know the lit crit guy is working in the literary lab late tonight in England. <laughs> right? uh, I am up. I have got my uh, glass of whiskey and all of my unholy texts around me. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, just uh, save that copy of the Necronomicon uh, that you were saying you were going to send our way. I yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. Definitely In the post. Read. Now, here's a here's a question for you. Very serious question. This is coming out on Halloween. Is Halloween a thing in England? Is it? Do they do Halloween over there? Uh, one of the one of the great uh, things about Halloween is that it's been a sort of bulwark against American cultural imperialism. Mm, nice. That's slowly that's slowly starting to break down. Oh. So. We're importing all of like the tacky costumes and like the awful uh, Halloween candy. But yeah, it's of course it was a thing. Uh, but it's now becoming kind of like more of a an Americanized thing. Ooh, but in England, don't you have costume parties year round, and you call it fancy dress parties? <laughs> uh, it's it's called living with class. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, what is Halloween if not tacky costumes and gross candy? Uh, how do I you mean, even celebrate it otherwise? Mostly what it is, is uh, usually trying to avoid feral gangs of small children uh, who will accost you for, for chocolate and, you know, commit horrible acts on your home and person if they don't get it. Um, so, like, maybe maybe we're moving up in the world if we're just replacing that with awful, awful candy and terrible costumes that you can get drunk in. <laughs> that sounds a lot like... Uh, American Halloween, no? Yeah, he's getting. He's yeah. saying they're getting there. Yeah. Uh, before you know it, you'll be getting yeah, a turkey totally. every year, and uh, you'll be celebrating Thanksgiving. Well, I'll have you oh. know. <laughs> and you'll celebrate the Fourth of July too, <laughs> one day. The the day of ignoble defeat, as it's known in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> because we're so important that every day you come around and just cry. Everything has to be about you, doesn't <laughs> I it? I know. I know. <laughs> Well, uh, everything uh, has to be about Britain, too, because a uh, very spooky thing is happening right now uh, over there, which is Brexit. How's that going? Oh, it is. It is uh, one. It's one of those like every pretty much everyone, regardless of where they are in the political spectrum, agrees that it's like the worst idea 
conceivable. Yeah, it seems like and, that from over here, yeah. Uh, and But pretty much everybody, except some extremely online centrists, go, yeah, it's probably going to happen and we're just going to have to deal with it because uh, there's no way out of this now. <laughs> like, we've we've gone, like, one foot over the cliff edge, and mm-hmm. now everyone's going, hey, maybe maybe this isn't going to work <laughs> out, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, just momentum is just going to carry us over. Well, uh, momentum is doing their work over there in a different way, so maybe a Lexit might be in your future, if not a hard Mad Max Brexit. Uh, it, there, this is not a Lexit. There is, there is no. That is, that is a beautiful myth that a few uh, brave, beautiful souls believed. And oh boy, were they wrong. Uh, <laughs> the latest news is about the necessity of stockpiling food. Mm. So I'm really looking forward to fighting some people in the streets for like mm. a tin of beans in the next two years. I think that's going to be a Better great way to go. Treating. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's my next Halloween plans all taken care of. <laughs> and I'd also say too that because we're in a, we're about to get into the gothic Marxism and horror genres, um, if people are kind of being preppers around Brexit, they can just continue doing that when the zombie apocalypse comes, and uh, you know they have to I mean, take shelter. I think the two are going to be pretty simultaneous. You know, that's <laughs> it's oh, just man. all going to hit at once. It's all happening. Um, go ahead, Jamie. So uh, we'd like to ask a little icebreaker question. Uh, we usually ask one particular question, but you know what? I'm going to mix it up a little because it's fucking Halloween. So today that question is, how spooky is your best ghost story? Oh, that's good. That's a good one. Uh, okay, I have a I have a mild obsession with uh, a subreddit called Ah No Sleep. Hmm. Uh, Sounds scary which, already. <laughs> which, which is, which is, it has one rule, which is everything you read there is true, even if it's not. Mm. Uh, Tell me and more. There was, there was one story. There was one story that kind of I remember reading for the first time, and it was, um, it was a, a story called "Don't t- Turn Off the Webcam." Ooh. And so all, all of the stories on "Are No Sleep" are told as sort of like first-person, true life narratives right you go this is what happened to me so it was this guy who was telling the story about his uh his partner his girlfriend lynn and they had a long distance thing going and then uh lynn lives with her dad and her dad passes away right so lynn lynn tells tells the boyfriend that she feels a little bit weird staying in the house by herself and so she asks him to always keep his webcam on and she'll do the same so that way you know even though they're long distance they can always kind of see each other right makes sense yeah so uh one night he just finished his finals right and he's gonna he's gonna drive out and see her and then one night he he kind of has a few too many and he sort of passes out and about 3 a.m he notices he's getting a call uh and the call gets interrupted so he you know gets up from his laptop to to go get a drink of water and he comes back and he sees that the call's back up and taking up most of the screen is uh, Lynn uh, and her puppy. And uh, I'm just going to read one little bit. Uh, yeah, back, up to, back off to the side, almost near the edge of the screen, was something else. I wiped my eyes and looked again. There. It's standing in the corner of the room. It's staring at her. Wrinkled, angry, twisted mouth. Hateful eyes. What the fuck? hateful eyes it's watching her and that's how i'm just gonna stop there that is that is one of my favorite spooky ghost stories that i found i got the chills 
Just that, a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah, that was definitely creepy, man. I mean, thank uh, thank goodness Reddit can do something for us, like scare the shit out of us, uh, you know, in the studio. Uh, Andy, do you have one? I have a true story. Uh, I don't know if it's uh, super scary, but it's true nonetheless. Um, I grew up in a suburban town near New York City, and I uh, got my learner's permit earlier than some of my punk friends, and I'd have to drive them around to shows. So I was driving one of them uh, home one night, and we were going on this one kind of uh, dark road, um, and he said to me that uh, in he's been on this road twice before, um, where the car started malfunctioning and stalled out, and like all of the the oh, the uh, dials on the car started going crazy, and like the radio was turning on and off and stuff. And it happened to him and his mom once, and it happened to him and his friend once, and he heard that it had happened to other friends on the same stretch of road. And he told me this before. He told me this previously when we were on this road, and on this occasion, he told me uh, like the same story. And I was like, "Yeah, whatever, dude," because I don't believe in that stuff. And it happened exactly as he described it in the exactly the same place that he described it. Um, and I've never seen this happen in a car before with like the the odometer going crazy, like all, all of the numbers shifting around and the radio coming on and off. And the car stalled out. I pulled to the side of the road, waited five minutes and just started back up again. And it was normal. Hmm. Well, I what think, do you think it was? Yeah. What do you got on that? Uh, car ghost. Dead car. <laughs> car crash there. The car came back and inhabits the cars. Well, I mean, we're all very, we try to be very scientific on this show with uh, our socialism and everything. There's probably a materialist explanation for what happened to Andy's car. Um, I'm not sure if there's one for my true, true ghost story that I have. Uh, this really did happen to me. I'd, I'd say I too was living in a suburban house and uh, I was maybe 12 or 13 years old. And um, there were two floors to the house. And I was laying in bed one night trying to get to sleep before school. And um, I heard this like kind of knocking and rustling under my bed. And I was like, you know, oh, it's one of the dogs playing around. And so I started yelling, uh, Michael, Michael, you know, my dog's name. And there was no dog under there, but I kept hearing this kind of banging, rustling sound under my bed. And then all of a sudden, you know, even though my bedroom door was closed, I heard something like rustle and run out of the room, seemingly through the closed door and then down the stairs of uh, our house. So now I was really freaked out and I ran into my parents' room, you know, 12, 13 years old. And I'm like, oh, my God, you'll never imagine what I heard, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, you know, throw, we'll throw a uh, blanket down. You can sleep on the car, on the, on the ground, rather. And I was like super scared. And then a few minutes later with the lights out, we heard steps walking up the stairs. And when they got to the top of the stairs, they stopped. My father opened the door of the room and ran out to see what was out there. And there was nothing there. So that was weird. And then he went back into the bedroom. And about five minutes later, we heard the same thing from the bottom of the stairs again. Footsteps walking up the stairs and stopping at the top. We check and there was nothing there. And this literally happened the entire night long. And uh, to this day, I have no explanation for it. We talked about it a few times after that. And nobody could really, uh, nobody had anything. So I don't believe in that shit. But that was a really weird situation. So let's just suspend our disbelief for this episode and imagine that ghosts and Marxism are real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I've got a scary story to top them all, guys. Oh, do you? All right. Yeah. You ready for this? Yeah. Let's do it. It was a dark and stormy night in a small European village several hundred years ago. The town folk spent their days tilling the customary commons which they lived off of. 
All they had to do was kick up their surplus to a spooky bejeweled pervert in a castle, and they were fine. One dark day, a strange people arrived from the faraway city. Their eyes were glazed. They talked in a strange way, and they seemed to know what they wanted, but nobody could guess. One night, in the darkness, the Lord watched in a resigned way as they started putting up fences and said, this land is now haunted by the ghost of the market. The townsfolk broke out the torches and pitchforks, but to no avail, as the Lord had left the castle. Dispossessed of their common lands, the townsfolk had no choice but to work in factories owned by these spectral figures, generating a surplus that they had no control over. Soon these villagers forgot their old way of life, and their children were cursed to eternal bondage in the same factories, and their children's children as well. This curse spread throughout the world and haunts us to this very day. That is frightening. That's scary, but Jamie, don't you think the tragedy of the commons is even scarier? (laughs) (laughs) So John, in preparation for this show, we read a lot of your recent texts and we will uh, link to them in the show notes. One of them was a three-part series called uh, Towards a Gothic Marxism. And I'm going to quote the lit crit guy here. We begin with an imminent critique with an awareness that capital is both abstract, impersonal, and systemic, and at the same time would be nothing without our complicity in a globe-spanning network of oppression. We are deep within the monster factory. For this, we need a gothic Marxism, analysis that would expose the occult economies of capitalism that keep hidden the ways in which capitalism operates and normalizes itself, as well as understand this cultural appropriation of monsters for what they are, not just a warning of what we think may happen, but a record of what is, in so many ways, already happening. Elsewhere, you also argue that these sort of symbolic and mythical things can help us avoid the dry materialism of a lot of uh, political economy. So can you, for our listeners, explain the, how this uh, occultism, this, this monstrosity, is at the heart of this modern social system and uh, your need and your desire to put forward a gothic Marxism? Yeah, and like maybe what gothic Marxism is on a very basic level, which you will probably also answer through answering the first question. <laughs> Well, so I'll, I'll do that one first. So like Gothic Marxism is a mode of cultural analysis, right? Because uh, a lot of the time, uh, especially when you deal with kind of like low, what's kind of seen as low culture or stuff that's maybe superstitious, uh, Marxists tend to try and explain all that away as like, oh, people are deceived or it's just like ideology. But a kind of gothic Marxist approach takes all of that stuff, all of that kind of cultural, like flotsam and jetsam really seriously and says that in that you can actually gain insight into the kind of psychological, social and material conditions of of a contemporary cultural moment. Um, So one of the things that I think gothic Marxism is really useful for is exposing the ways in which there is a kind of perverse irrationality that runs through a lot of uh, contemporary capitalism. I mean, we're told that we kind of live in this system that is kind of perfectly fun- functional. But as any listener in the States or uh, any of you guys who have ever had to deal with the American healthcare system will, mm. will know, like that system is not perfectly functional or rational, but is bizarre and kind of Kafkaesque and hugely uh, violent towards the people who have to kind of endure it. We, we're told that like, 
the, the world works in a kind of reasonable way, right? That, well, if you follow the rules, things will work out for you. And one of the kind of big uh, sort of after effects of something like the 2008 Great Recession, the oncoming ecological and economic crisis that's, that's about to hit is that we found out that following the rules doesn't mean anything. Right. You can you can work hard and you can you can save up and you can get a deposit because that's what you're supposed to do. And then you can get a mortgage that maybe is a bit much, but you're told it's going to be fine. And then for some reason, uh, your house is now worth nothing and the bank is coming to take it away from you. Right. Right. So there, there, there are kind of these spectral forces in operation around mortgages, I think, are really a great example of this is the way that houses are possessed and kind of repossessed. And that just isn't metaphoric right there's something actual that happens there spectral networked digitized numbers on a screen can sort of uh, cause uh, can wipe out your 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 savings account it could it could mean that the next time you're sick the hospital won't cover you it could mean that uh, as hard as you've tried to get yourself that good old american dream the house gets taken off you right um so uh, that's that's why i think it's useful in pop culture, I think there's becoming a proliferation, a, a recognition of these different kinds of horrors that are represented in the horror genre. Uh, and we're mm. going to be talking later about Hereditary, which has like many different kinds of horrors going on at once, and Mandy, and uh, metal horror, and haunted houses, and stuff like that. Uh, but uh, I just want to stay on Gothic Marxism for a second and ask, uh, how did the vampire and the zombie fit into this Gothic Marxist analysis of our social system and collective fears? Well, what's kind of interesting is that for a while it looked like the vampire was sort of like dying out, right? They 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 tend to be kind of historical figures. Uh, I mean, they're they're aristocratic, they're landowners, they live in stately homes, and they sort of reflect a very stratified and very hierarchical uh, class structure for a given society. Um, uh, whereas uh, it's no surprise then that the zombie kind of emerges as a cultural force in the 60s and 70s. Right. Because then then you see that kind of breakdown, you see the Hollywood new wave of the 70s, you see the kind of countercultural movement uh, of the, the mid-20th century. And that's reached its kind of apotheosis with the sort of grim nihilism of a show like The Walking Dead, for example, mm. where, where what you have is you don't have one aristocratic subject who can come and take something very personal from you anymore what you have is this kind of desubjectivized mass of people that is increasingly made into this global force right uh in a way there there's some really interesting stuff written about the kind of neoliberal politics of the zombie i mean neoliberalism would want to create a global homogenized workforce that you could shuttle around from place to place Mm. you know I mean, that's what that's what modern capitalism wants us to be. Um, but given the way that that exacerbates huge amounts of income inequality, I actually think you're going to start to see the return of the aristocratic, stratified class society that produced the kind of the vampire figure in the first place. Mm. That's that's interesting. And that's a much more uh, <laughs> intelligent and erudite uh, explanation for why vampires seem to come back on some sort of cycle like once every 10 years uh i think maybe people are just horny right because like the vampire <laughs> that's a big part of it that's like that my explanation was like 10 percent of it the the other 90 percent of it 
is just just people getting horny. Well, I must be a sick fuck because uh, I'm actually more sexually attracted to zombies than vampires. But uh, oh god, that's just me. I like me a lady Frankenstein. <laughs> I never knew this about you. Uh, zombies are. I mean. Full disclosure, I'm very scared of zombies. I don't know what that says about me. Please stop making that noise. Uh, ever since I saw 28 Days Later in high school and had horrible nightmares from that and then put myself through uh, 28 Days Later 2, whatever that was called, like I'm, I can sit through a zombie thing. Like I'm not a child, but it's not worth it for the nightmares that I have later. And I make Sean watch The Walking Dead on <laughs> headphones. True story. So I don't have to hear the zombie sounds. But then he tells me the plots later. Yeah, it's really true. I tell it through like a bedtime story, but I leave out all the bad parts. You know? <laughs> the parts where people get eaten and there's flesh falling everywhere uh, and all that stuff. Uh, uh, and the sound. Uh, she's, really, she's really freaked out all right, we the can, sound. We can stop talking about it right okay. now. So, um, <laughs> You know, also, my favorite song, by the way, is I Walked With a Zombie. Anyway. Um, <laughs> That'll go down well. The, the, the take on zombies that you have is really interesting, too, because I, I connect those films up to capitalism as well in my mind. But I think um, there's that famous quote that's often attributed to Zizek, right? It's easier for people to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And if you look at these uh, sort of zombie apocalypse wastelands, like I remember one scene in 28 days later when they go to the store and everything is free because mm. everyone's gone and capitalism is over. And it's like, you know, obviously there are bad parts to the zombie apocalypse too. A couple few bad but like, parts. But like, <laughs> you know, you don't have to go to work. <laughs> I mean, there, there is that. But like one of the things that's interesting and sort of slightly terrifying about that is that what happens at the end of, of 28 days later and the beginning of 28 weeks later is a massive invasion by the US military. Yes, that's mm -hmm. right. <laughs> like, yeah. like, so even even if, you know, society collapses, we see the abolition of, of, of capital, we see the, the worthlessness of the, of the money form, the US Army's just gonna rock up and reinstate all of that. Right, <laughs> and not to mention too, you mentioned The Walking Dead, which uh, I shamefully still watch this many seasons later. <laughs> I'm just kind of perversely <laughs> drawn to it, even though it gets worse and worse. But um, there's a similar sort of vision in that where, you know, even though presumably there's a sort of fresh start in society uh, for humanity, even though they're uh, surrounded by brain-eating, horrible zombies, you know, humans could just be, you know, maybe crafting a new world for themselves. There's always this like very strong sense of hierarchy, right? And they oh, yeah, kind yeah. of reproduce a lot of the class relations that exist under capitalism. Um, I mean, who's the the leader is literally a cop. Yes, like, literally a cop. God. You're right, 100%. Yeah. What a dim vision of the future. Yeah, and the and the and the bad guys always tend to be uh, an authoritarian authoritarian figure, you know. And um, mm -hmm. so there's a, there's a way in which maybe that's a failure of our imagination, but there's also maybe a way in which this apocalyptic vision that Jamie talked about, you know, there is something um, frightening and something um, potentially brutal and fascistic about imagining a collapse of capitalism that we didn't do ourselves, right? That we didn't overthrow ourselves that's why the zombie apocalypse needs to start here in the imperial core if it's ever going to bring about the posadist resolution that we want i think a posadist zombie film needs to happen oh hell yeah <laughs> well we'll talk to comrade communicator about that so just to, to situate us back because i want to uh, get the listeners to where we are right now you're you're saying that essentially these two figures the vampire and the zombie they sort of represent not just historically, but in terms of the actual operation of the day-to-day -day capitalist system, they represent different uh, factors at work there, and that we can understand these two monsters or monsters in general as sort of a, a reflection, right, of our real material conditions? 
Yeah, totally. I think um, the thing I would say is that the, this is maybe something we'll get onto in a little bit, but like there's never a direct uh, analogy. Like monsters are, are metaphoric and they're not just like simple analogies where you go, ah, well, zombies mean this. Right. But it's like the thing that's useful about a gothic Marxist approach is that it allows you to use these metaphors to kind of raise political consciousness, to kind of illustrate the realities of people's political and material conditions. And it's like, you know, you, you, you watch a zombie film and go, oh, look at this mass of, of mindless people shambling around the, the shopping center. And then you go, oh, what are we going to do this weekend? I don't know. Let's, let's go to the shopping center. Right. And you can suddenly you can connect kind of cultural and social lived experiences to the kind of cultural products that are produced by that same system. Right, that's great. So yeah, that that's reminds right. me of your writing on um, the Gothic in neoliberalism and centrist politics, because yeah. like you say, we see these people on TV, they seem very polished, the things they're saying sound very reasonable, until you extrapolate them out to their meaning, their, their full meaning, which is like, oh, you have to work until you die and there's yeah. no alternative. Like, that's fucking horrible. Like, don't yeah. say that to me with a smile on your face. <laughs> I mean, how dare they? How dare they have the, the goal to sort of pretend that they are these competent figures of like mild managerial efficiency when, you know, like they're these sort of blood-soaked monsters <laughs> that would kind of casually wander into our, our into our shared social life and go, oh, by the way, we've decided to grind up the poor instead of giving them anything like a social safety net. And everyone just goes, oh, uh, okay. <laughs> Guess that's just how it's got to be. That's just the way it is. Uh, I mean, them, them's just the facts. That's it. Them's Th just the facts. Them's the breaks. <laughs> Single payer healthcare will never, ever happen. <laughs> and by the way, if you make less than $30,000 a year, please report to the People Grinding Center where you will be turned into nootropics for rich people. Thank you. I mean, it's barely even a metaphor anymore because there are people like Peter Thiel who are literally taking the blood of young people. Like, yeah. It's... It's it's like a Bathory Elizabeth Bathory capitalism, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and we all just sort of go, oh, I guess I guess this is I guess is this is just the way the world works when a kind of gothic Marxist approach. Because one of the things I said in that article about centrist politicians is that they're exemplary figures of closing down the space within which politics can be practiced. Mm. So it isn't it isn't stuff that you know might happen that suddenly becomes utopian it's stuff that we had and they took from us right. that suddenly becomes utopian i mean the big example here in the uk is is properly funded higher education accessible to all that was a thing that existed in the uk right. uh, and and for various reasons now no longer exists and so suddenly the idea of going well yeah of course you shouldn't be in debt if you go to university people go what that's that's like a crazy utopian vision of the future and you go no this was something we used to have and then these these sort of gray suited ghouls floated yeah. in and just removed it from us. Well, people are very frightened of Peter Thiel to bring it back to the vampire thing. Like, <laughs> I know people were frightened of Elizabeth Bathory back in the day because she like tortured and killed a whole lot of uh, innocent peasant girls. But like, man, I don't know if she has anything on Peter Thiel. People, this is a, a fun anecdote just to show you how scared people are of him because you know he basically single handedly executed Gawker and 
might do it again to uh, Splinter, which is what's left of Cocker. I'm like, okay, so I wrote a blog post about Peter Thiel's little blood project that was titled like, um, Peter Thiel literally wants to live off the blood of the young or something. Uh, This is when I was working at Death and Taxes, which was part of Spin Media. And I asked the guys in the graphics department just to make me like a fun little graphic of Peter Thiel as a vampire, which really you don't actually need to do that much to him. (laughs) There's no work. There is no work involved in that. (laughs) But like they were so scared of getting sued by Peter Thiel that they're like, all right, well, we'll put fangs, we'll, we'll put fangs in his mouth, but we're not going to do anything else. That was like their <laughs> compromise. And I was like, all right, fair enough. Peter Thiel, uh, there was a, a rumor that I, I think somebody who, people who know him have confirmed that part of the reason he was such a supporter of Trump is that Trump apparently promised him a Supreme Court seat. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, so, I mean, that's scary in a couple ways. First, that Peter Thiel was dumb enough to believe something like that. <laughs> Second, Amazing. uh, that Peter Thiel wants to live forever. Oh, God. So, so he would have been, like, just the Kavanaugh forever. Oh, my God. Like a neo-reactionary undying overlord. <laughs> the Thiel court that lasts. I mean, a this is what years. I'm saying, you know. This isn't an the exaggeration. The vampire returns. I mean, yeah. The vampire is back in a big way. But I wrote an article for the New Inquiry uh, a couple of years ago about Peter Thiel comparing his futurism, like the Silicon Valley futurism, to the futurism of the Bolsheviks. Um, and the strange overlap where they both wanted to colonize space, uh, you know, move humanity into space, and to live forever through parabiosis. Uh, Bogdanov, one of the leaders of the Prolet cult, um, wrote a, a story in 1905 called Red Star about uh, this Martian civilization that shares blood with one another um, through mutual aid. And they, they like look at how life is on Earth and wonder why we're so backwards and stupid. Uh, and sure enough, parabiosis, which killed Bogdanov uh, in the end, actually, um, has come back um, in the form of, of the, the neo-futurists who are sort of neo-reactionary. Neo-feudalists, right? What do you think about that, John? Mm. I mean, I think this, this, there are certain, there are certain, uh, mutual aid can only extend so far, surely. But <laughs> when you get down to the... Uh, uh, the level that they took it to, you suddenly start to see that there is a kind of uh, the, the genuine horror of what people like Thiel uh, really want. They want not just to um, control people, they want to sort of own people. You know, it's not just that, like, I'm going to be able to tell you what to do when you go to work. It's like, I'm going to be able to literally, literally drain the life out of you I in order to sustain blood. myself. Right, yeah. Yeah, and then they're going to frame it as a voluntary relationship, right? Like, Oh, these people—they're oh, just taking the opportunity to earn a little bit of extra income. You weren't using that blood. Being Give it a to blood me. boy. Well, yeah. there's going to be an Uber and, for uh, blood. Oh God! Like oh, you're going to have to. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. That is going to happen. You're going to have to give blood, and maybe you'll be able to afford enough money to get some of it back. <laughs> oh man, that's that's going to be innovation. That's going to be innovating the healthcare market in the states. Disrupting your veins from San Francisco <laughs> to New York City and beyond. And also, you know. The, the futurists want to make an, a, a pill that makes you live like 10 years longer. So you're going to have to literally earn like credits for like years of your life. Yeah. I mean, we already we already kind of mortgage ourselves to our bosses. Right. Right. When we voluntarily give up eight or 12 or 15 hours of our day to go and uh, work for people who hate us in order to get subsistence. Uh, so it's going to be taken even further, which is going to be like, well, you're going to mortgage life. 
I mean, uh, pharmaceutical companies are already running feasibility studies on whether curing long-term diseases is profitable. Ugh. And so what, what they'll do instead is they'll go, no, everything will become a managed illness. And because that, that way, you turn the individual human subject into a constant, uh, temporally productive asset. Mm, a stream of revenue, like the same companies that helped to create the opioid crisis are now making money off of... Uh opioid substitution medication with suboxone right you cause the yeah. problem and then you make money off the back end absolutely absolutely it's the kind of sort of sleek horror of capital uh, operating at its like outermost limit because ultimately the limit of of capitalist accumulation is how many people can you get to work for you and now you, suddenly you can do that down to like a, a cellular level where even your blood, even your, uh, you know, the very kind of stuff of you can become economically productive and thus only conceivable in economic terms. Soon it's going to be like, oh, what, you didn't sell blood? I mean, do you not, do you not want to make that extra 300 bucks? <laughs> it's funny how um, if, if you look at um, cultural production like 30, 40 years ago, selling blood was considered, you know, you're on skid row and that's the last thing you could do. But now it's like normal. Yeah. You know, it's just a normal yeah, thing. That's, that's fine. It's totally fine. <laughs> so um, we, on the Antifa, we like to get, you know, deep into things and theoretical. And you've put some real markers down connecting these sort of monstrosities with finance, you know, with mortgages. Uh, with work, with accumulation. I had a question for you. Um, it seems like a lot of your writing, you know, you have this vampire that's representative of like the parasitism of capital and this blood sucking mm. tendency, right? Uh, mm. Maybe you've discussed this elsewhere and I haven't seen it, but what's your take on uh, the final section of uh, chapter one in uh, uh, Capital Volume One, the fetishism uh, part? Because in the fetishism of the commodity and the secrets thereof, Marx uh, uses this anthropological concept of the fetish, right, which is this man-made object that has these supernatural powers to control mm. others. Uh, and he says, quote, the individual commodity not only stands with its feet on the ground, but in relation to all other commodities, it stands on its head and evolves out of its wooden brain grotesque ideas, far more wonderful than table turning ever was. Uh, so Marx relates in the footnote that this table turning he refers to was actually this wave of occultism that sweeps uh, the European upper classes in the wake of the failures of the bourgeois revolutions of the 1848, right? So that's a long way of saying, um, can you describe, you know, this uh, commodity fetish as Marx understands it and how you would wrap that up in your uh, Gothic Marxist analysis in terms of social relations and the mediation of them with things? Yeah, absolutely. So if I can just shill for a second here. Please do. Um, uh, I, over on uh, Patreon, I've just finished a reader's guide to the first three chapters of um, Capital Volume 1. Because that's the bit that lots of people try and read and they sort of give up. Because uh, the section before this, where Mark starts talking about fetishism of the commodity, the section before it is really tedious. Mm. And it's like super boring and like very heavy on like accountancy language. And then he moves into this kind of weird, metaphoric, gothic language about the commodity. And so trying to figure out exactly what the commodity fetishism means is, I think, really quite important. So commodity fetishism is uh, sort of when you break it down is about fundamentally changing the way that we relate to one another. Right. Because historically speaking, Marx goes into this in quite a lot of detail. Uh, the way he puts it is that labor is a social act. Um, either it's something that you do in order to meet your own kind of immediate needs. So like. You go out into the into the woods and you chop down some wood and you make a table for your house 
or maybe you live in a kind of community in which you can all kind of meet your needs based on the relative skills that you have. And so you deal directly with one another and the people that you know. Mm -hmm. So commodity, commodity fetishism essentially changes the social relations between people into material relations between things. So the example that I gave in the, the guide that I wrote was that, like, let's say you go to the local corner store because you want to uh, get some bourbon to drink whilst you're on a podcast with some people. Uh, <laughs> it's a bizarre example, but go on. You know, it's niche, maybe, but okay. stay with me. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're, we're listening. Uh, and like, I, uh, I walk into the place and I have no way of knowing. Uh, I don't know if the people who made the bourbon are, are treated badly by their boss. I don't know if he kind of docks their wages. I don't know if he denies them healthcare. And not only do I not know, increasingly there is genuinely no way for me to know what I can, the only social, the social relation that used to exist between the people who would make delicious bourbon and the people uh, like me who would buy the delicious bourbon, does, that doesn't exist anymore. What exists is a relation between things, between money form and commodity. And so I think what, the go a kind of gothic Marxist take on this is that, is that like commodities are haunted by the ghosts of their producers, right? I mean, it's kind of difficult when you find out about the conditions of like fast fashion workers in the global south or in Asia. Uh, the next time you go into into TK Maxx or into H and M, it's pretty difficult to walk around without thinking, you know, uh, that that kind of spectral form mm. of these exploited workers who have been so horribly abused in order that this this you know fifteen dollar shirt can appear in front of you so kind of a gothic marxist approach is is to me anyway a way of trying to undo that transformation of social relations into material relations right because that means that we end up as kind of atomized lonely unable to genuinely sort of relate on a on a on a societal level uh, and instead, what we could do is we could understand that these these commodities that are supposed to give us meaning and supposed to, you know, direct our lives in so many ways were produced and made uh, by other people like us. Right. If we can kind of look past the commodity, we might see the ghost of its producer just out of sight. Quick follow up. Um, what do you take of um, that gothic language he uses in um, this last uh, this section four of uh uh, chapter one, where he's talking about table turning, he's talking about this wave of occultism, right? Um, do mm. you do you see that in your studies too? That uh, particular events, like you had mentioned, the crisis, right? But particular events uh, bring back uh, not only this sort of monstrous vision uh, that humanity often has, but also these sort of uh, occultic practices. Lots of like movements from below meet uh, kind of reactionary occultic forces of the upper classes, right? And we all sort of secretly know. Uh, that's bred into the kind of class structure in England. I mean, you, do you guys remember David Cameron and the story about the pig? Oh, sure. Oh, we saw that. Black, we saw that Black Mirror episode. Come yeah, on. I We're not Black that Mirror, here. I thought Black Mirror was going to be a comedy from that episode because it was so fucking funny. <laughs> and then the rest of them were not funny at all. Yeah. So you have but, your own skull and bones, right? And your prime minister yeah, did totally. what again? Uh, 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 alleg allegedly. Allegedly, <laughs> put his dick in the head of a in the mouth of a dead pig. See, as a allegedly, as a, as a British person, you have to say that because you have very strong libel laws over there. So yes, allegedly. Yeah, yeah I don't, do, uh, Did he very... allegedly do this to completion? <laughs> <laughs> to my great great pleasure, I don't know the answer to that question <laughs> because there is no more kind of hellish or demonic sight than a than a 
right-wing Tory in sexual <laughs> ecstasy. Um, that's no nobody needs that. It's also but a very point, rare, a rare sight as well. But yes, go on. <laughs> uh, but my point is that like that story that floats it around, like that everybody, everybody I spoke to about that went. You know what? Even if it didn't actually happen. Yeah, it's true. I mean, that's, 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 that's the kind of thing they get up to, right? Well, it's the same thing we as all like, know that. Sorry. It's the same thing as like Pizzagate in America, right? Like <laughs> they think that these are a bunch of depraved bourgeois motherfuckers doing like weird sex magic rituals with children when in fact it's just like a bunch of boring rich people having dinner with an artist named Marina Abramovic. Yeah, they're thinking mm-hmm. about the House of Lords. <laughs> a weird den of perversion. Yeah, uh, as it has been for literally centuries. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So in your post, one of your posts about uh, Gothic Marxism, you write, a widely accepted definition argues that the Gothic is defined by its relationship to both space and time, often in an inverse sense to something like science fiction. Where sci-fi goes forward in time and outward in space, the gothic does the reverse, going back in time and into a tight, enclosed space. So the fact that it's usually backward-looking in nature, um, it seems like the gothic might lend itself better to fascism. So is there such a thing as gothic fascism? Uh, kind of, yeah. Um, and this is, this is one of the reasons why I think more leftists... Uh, should be kind of interested in this area of culture, right? Because there is nothing intrinsically uh, left-wing in them, right? In these in in these films, in this kind of mode of culture. Because as you say, it kind of, in many ways, it lends itself uh, to uh, the kind of either the tacit endorsement of the status quo or to like actually really quite reactionary politics. I mean, if you look at some of the history, some of the literature... One of the first Gothic novels was written by the son of the British prime minister at the time. So it's like it is bound up in power structures. But the thing I would say is that like meaning is contestable, right? It's something that can be determined by uh, cultural intervention, by making use of the content um, and by being aware that just because something seems like uh, like obviously there is there is misogyny, there's racism, there is other kinds of. Uh, structural oppression existent in the horror film um, but that doesn't mean that within them it doesn't lie something of uh, uh, potentially revolutionary usefulness so like you can't leave horror to the right wingers because right. then that's how you get kind of uh, a long a long while ago i wrote i wrote a little thing on uh, something called the psychopath gaze right so there's a classic essay in film studies uh, by laura mulvey uh, on the male gaze mm-hmm. on the camera is the point of view of, of uh, men. And so what I argued is like, like a lot of low budget horror, which is not very good and is like super gory during the kind of torture porn phase of horror was invested in the psychopath gaze. So you got the point of view of the psychopath and you ended up cheering on the horrible violence that's meted out often to uh, young women or other vulnerable groups. So like you can't just leave horror, uh, to sort of in its own little cultural uh, playpen because there are things within it which are potentially reactionary and dangerous and have to be pointed out as well as the things within them which are potentially useful for kind of raising uh, class consciousness, for doing political education, for making politicized art. So like Gothic uh, fascism absolutely exists because all these uh, 
fascists are calling back to a prelapsarian time before the fall, whatever they take it to be. Definitely. And they, so like you can't you can't allow them to adopt certain cultural areas without uh, forcing them out of it. You know, the monsters are not for them. <laughs> They're the ones mm. who create monsters. And as socialists and leftists, I think it's vital that we kind of look at how in political discourse certain groups are made monstrous. I mean, you look at how uh, anti-imperialists or like those who resist U.S. imperialism abroad are painted by the U.S. media. They're turned into these monsters, these kind of crazed figures that exist in the nightmares of the American political unconscious. And I'm like, you know what? You can you can't you you can't create monsters without there being uh, a communist there to go why are you monstering them right. yeah and, and and not the capitalists right. yeah that that really reminds me of like how the Viet Cong were portrayed in uh movies in the 70s right there were all these always these like bloodthirsty larger than life mm. creatures who mm. also lurked around though and never really had any personality they were just this like dark collective force that was trying to destroy the uh good American soldier right yeah totally I mean, the same thing happens in like the classic westerns, mm. where like uh, indigenous people in North America are made into these kind of horrifying caricatures. And you go, if you let that slide, you know, it's it's about monsters exist on the edge of things, and it's like who is made into a monster and why is an incredibly important question to contest. Yeah, I, I'm also thinking about uh, all of the influence of the Gothic in music because. I struggle this. I struggle with this myself as someone who's always been drawn to gothic aesthetics, whether in uh, music or literature or movies. Uh, right? Like clearly, that speaks to some libidinal urges in me and in people in general. But I'm also a socialist, and you know, it's not always easy as a socialist goth because, like. You know, a lot of this stuff is fairly apolitical, I would say. But then you have bands like Death in June who are like clearly playing around with fascist, gothic fascist imagery in a way that mm. is mm, not so great. Even going back to Joy Division, right? Which yeah. uh, is a band that we probably all love. But problematic fave, Joy problematic, Division. Right? <laughs> um, yeah, totally. I mean, that's, that's there in the culture, absolutely. Uh, but I think one of the things that we kind of have to recognize is that like that speaks to something wider than just the thing in it in and of itself right monsters are never just about themselves they're always about kind of something wider and like you said there's that kind of libidinal attraction uh towards the gothic and it's about uh, in a way this kind of leads into like the necessity for good self-crit and being like yeah. but what is it about this which is drawing me you know why why is it this you know it's like uh we've got to kill the fascists inside your, our own heads before before we can take on uh, the ones which are genuinely imperiling, you know, society as we know it. So that's really interesting. Um, and it, I, I'm not going to read the whole quote, but um, what's your take on the Zizek idea that, um, like, he, he brings up the example of Rammstein, how they're often accused of sort of playing with uh, Nazi or fascist iconography. But um, if you look at the content of what they're doing, it's actually like sort of taking and divorcing these things and making them somewhat apolitical, right? Like mm. they're still speaking to people's desire for this like mass catharsis, but they're doing it through rock and roll music, not through far right politics. And he says mm. by by doing that, it's sort of fighting Nazism. Do you think that's uh, there's any truth to that? Or maybe he's being a little far fetched. Uh, uh, uh. 
oh, what's that? I think Slavo is reaching. <laughs> Wait, you think Slavo is saying something a little far-fetched? Get out of here. I mean, shit, no. <laughs> I mean, at the same time, I, just, I sort of take the point, but I'm like, if you want to use rock music to, to take on the aesthetics of the far right and to fight the far right, like, look at the history of the punk movement, which was full of actual fucking up Nazis. Like, right. like you didn't need to just take on their aesthetics. Like, yeah. rock against racism was a thing. <laughs> like, yes, it was. Punks, punks in the goth movement has always been about uh, this. There is a kind of dialectical tension there, right, between that sort of desire to shock and transgress. But and but what's truly transgressive is fucking up fash. Fash and <laughs> oh, fash. Yeah. That's, That's right. right. Antifada mindset right there, folks. You heard it. <laughs> yeah, All so the way across the pond. Maybe maybe I'm just being reactionary with my uh, love of the gothic. So I, I want to talk a little bit about two of, I think, the best horror films from this year, uh, which were Hereditary and Mandy, which is actually classified as a metal horror movie. Um, and how I think they both create a, a sense of horror place solely around society itself and the idea of like interacting people outside of your home or outside of the um, stable, meaningless relationships that you have. Um, so that's especially true in Mandy, which uh, is set in this cabin in the woods. And there's this couple, Nick Cage, uh, who, had, you know, he's such a non-character. I don't think even think he has a name. <laughs> and his girlfriend is Mandy, who's an interesting character who, you know, likes metal, reads pulp fiction. Um, and they just have this vacuous relationship where they just like sit around talking about nothing watching tv um and no one is in this movie until like half an hour in when you this cult passes by this like manson-esque ex-hippie cult and they see mandy and they have like some fixation on her and they kidnap her and then the rest of the movie is nick cage getting progressively more evil and and hunting down the cult uh, one by one and their their gang of acid casualty bikers so I thought um, uh, this film, along with uh, Hereditary, which we'll talk about in a second, um, demonstrates both this, uh, this, this struggle of like the empty irony of, of metal and of the horror genre and how it's supposed to just be simple and aesthetic and its struggle against the world of people who believe things and organize themselves and want things, which to a metalhead, you might as well just be like a Christian cultist. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, that kind of dovetails with a question that I had, too, which is like, is there a way for the gothic aesthetic to be marshaled in favor of something progressive or is it always going to be sort of apolitical at best? Well, if I can jump in real quick, I think we need to make a, uh, a divide here between kind of the, the gothic or the horror as like um, a particular type of uh, cultural production on the one hand. And then I think maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, John, but the way that you're using it, which is um, more of a method of analysis of analyzing culture, not quite its yeah. production, but what it actually means that these particular monsters are arising at this particular time in this particular way. Yeah, I mean, so you can have a, a gothic Marxism, but you can also have a Marxist gothic. Ah, there you go. Right? I mean, that's, a, that's maybe a good way of getting into it. Because it's like that desperate desire to sort of depoliticize horror is obviously a kind of foundationally political move. You do see it with horror fans all the time, where they, I kind of pitched, I pitched a a a, a, a hot take to one of the big horror sites on uh, why more horror fans should be Marxists, oh, and shit. they came back to me going, going, 
now this is this is too political and i was like this is exactly the problem this is exactly the problem because wow. you know we've we've explored the horrors of the unknown and all we've got left are the horrors of ourselves and it's like if we can't accept that maybe that requires a degree of politics what are we, what are we even doing isn't it well, it's fascinating what what being how how much of an ideology being apolitical is right I mean, that's really so much work. Yeah, it is a lot of work to be apolitical. And and I think a lot of people, I mean, part of the reason why they probably got mad about that is like a lot of people use horror as a way to escape from the horrors of the real world and to like try to bring the two together. They're like, what the fuck are you doing? This is my me time. This is the time to be scared of things that aren't real instead of like, you know, your fucking shitty non-existent pension or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally. And there's a degree to which I sort of sympathize with that. And it's like, it's why it's important that, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a Marxist, I'm a, and a, and a humanist, but I don't, you sh- like, it should never be moralistic, right? It should never be like, ah, ah, if we, we're not, we're not scolds about stuff that people enjoy, but, but merely pointing out that all of this stuff connects, like the stuff you enjoy, you enjoy it for a reason and you enjoy it because it speaks to right. Mm-hmm. where you are and and what you're going through we don't need a horror socialist realism is what you're saying yeah totally <laughs> <laughs> i mean th- these were two great movies and i'm not it's not a criticism uh, of the people that like them or the re- or even the fact that they're resonant i just think it's so interesting that these narratives are coming out um that just consistently show people uh who are isolated and if they lapse and become disisolated at any point, that's when the horror starts, and that's what happens in Hereditary. This uh, the, the maternal figure Annie, her her mother, who is this um, overbearing occultist, has just died, and her whole life has been struggling to extract her family from the influence of her mother. And once her mom's gone, she thinks now I can like deal with some of the traumas and some of the tension in our house. And it's kind of a gothic horror movie, and it's set in the the Southwest. It's all in this kind of creepy house and she creates dollhouses and miniatures and she part of her way of dealing with the tension in the house is she sends her son out uh with her her younger daughter charlie to go to a party and of course the party goes horribly horribly wrong uh without giving away exactly what happens but from that moment on nothing is hidden anymore all the traumas are coming out people just say it you see like the the gore of what happens to charlie um and then the the you know the haunting and stuff happens and, but even then, Annie is trying to tr- uh, de-isolate herself by going to a trauma support group. And it turns out, big spoiler alert, the trauma support group and almost everybody else that she sees throughout the entire movie is part of her, her mother's cult who's trying to you know reincarnate Charlie as like this uh, satanic king. So once again, the message is like, if you've got you know a big house in the desert, um, that's a good desert. start. But don't yeah. go, don't leave the house. Don't go and talk <laughs> to anyone in your town. Don't trust anyone. And it's almost the exact same message in terms of horror as Mandy. Mm. Yeah, I think this is. I think this is really true. I think the the, the great horror is, um, as it always has been, is ourselves. Right, the horror of of being uh, kind of part of a of a of a collective group and so like it's not a surprise that right now you see horror coming out that is about the cynicism of institutions the fact that corruption is everywhere the fact that because we're really seeing the the uh fraying and the kind of shattering of whatever might remnant of class consciousness might have existed right whatever uh 
ground we might still be holding on to. You see that sort of start to fray and sort of tear, tear apart because of systemic political forces which have desperately tried over the past, what, 30, 40 years to ingrain this this cynicism, this mistrust, this belief that uh, monsters are everywhere and are coming for you and are coming for your property and are coming for your kids into sort of every aspect of, of existence. So I, I totally agree. I think this is, it's, uh, here you see horror as a mode of production, right? It ties into that overall very cynical capitalist ideology. My take doesn't really conflict with Andy's so much as complement it, because um, I saw it very much through the lens of gender and the nuclear family, which is, you know, again, an example of atomization, and it's also incredibly gendered. So starting in the Victorian era, the family was really naturalized as the space outside capitalism. Uh, the mother was this angelic figure, you know, the angel in the house. Um, the cult of Victorian motherhood. Indeed. And uh, Sylvia Federici posits this process as part of primitive accumulation. You know, it started much earlier um, in earlier versions of like proto-capitalism. But basically, uh, women's bodies became dominated by the logic of the market, as, as everything did. Um, as well as male scientists and experts who existed in opposition to midwives, uh, many of whom were burned as witches in early modern Europe, as well as colonial America, as the process, part of the process where, uh, you know, women's bodies were now being used for the reproductive labor, right? Like literally reproducing the next generation of workers um, so that that could benefit uh, capital and there were people to work in the factories. And this was kind of naturalized as like, this is the way that it's just supposed to be. Um, the nuclear family under capitalism has been, you know, fully enshrined as the best way to raise kids. Each family is atomized in its own home with the white picket fence, blah, blah, blah. But as we know, and I, I think as this movie shows, it's also a site of intense trauma, right? Like mm -hmm. um, early modern psychology was founded on this fact, especially centered on the mother. Um, Freud had all his famous theories of the monstrous feminine and uh, the mother as this like castrating influence uh on the son um and there were early bolshevik thinkers who thought that parents could not be trusted to raise their own kids because they were too emotionally connected to this project to do a good job and like you know that seems kind of laughable at first but you know looking at all of the bad aspects of the family uh it kind of seems like they had a point um i like personally alexandra kolontai's vision for parenting where you raise kids collectively and parents can kind of have as much or as little involvement as they want but you're definitely not supposed to do it alone and that's something that all of my friends pretty much who've had children so far have told me so to bring it back to hereditary uh we have a situation where the nuclear family is being reified and renaturalized after a few decades of a certain kind of liberal feminist progress uh and she is like a professional woman in this movie right um women's reproductive rights are under attack uh, the beneficiaries of this project, like the pink pussy hat ladies, right? They're just kind of waking up to the fact that maybe it was illusory all along. And, you know, this kind of privilege only existed for them under this very specific form of neoliberal capitalism. Um, and this rollback is producing a whole bunch of specifically feminized anger that has yet to be channeled effectively into any coherent type of political movement. And I think that scares people a lot and hooks up with a lot of different movies where... Um, the woman or puberty, the pubescent woman is connected up to some kind of terrifying power, like Carrie is a classic one. But um, 
yeah so she's this professional woman she thinks she has control she makes these creepy miniatures um she names her family's issues in this very clinical way but it turns out in the end that she has no control because it's not science it's not something that she can understand it's this unnamed evil that stretches back through the generations so maybe the monstrous in this movie um the stuff we can't control in our lives is not something that can be kept at bay by these modern liberal institutions of the nuclear family of science of you know even a kind of liberal feminism and uh you have to go right to the source so that's uh that's kind of my take in a nutshell uh what do you think about all that uh hell yeah <laughs> ah, that's what we say here dead ass dead ass uh, uh f firstly absolutely and shout out sylvia frederici and the incredible book caliban and the witch that's right i'm reading it right now is one of the kind of foundational uh texts of marxist feminism um yeah absolutely and it's about one of the things that i think is really important here as well is about not just trauma but grief right. and the fact that that trauma and grief are um uh, passed on they're, they're communicated down familial lines right um and i totally agree with the point about child raising um Shulamith Firestone in the Dialectic of Sex says something much the same, that it should be made uh, social and that women's bodies should be freed from that reproductive labor. Um, so, yeah, I'm 100% on board. Hell yeah. So and ahead, That's, that's ahead, awesome. And I've, been, I've also been trying to figure out, like, this is an intensely gendered movie, but is it a feminist movie? I'm not sure. Because, like... <laughs> If in the I, end, this female anger and this female power is kind of terrifying. And uh, like much like in The Witch, at the end of it, I'm like, hmm, I'm starting to think maybe witches are bad. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, just a third movie that I really liked this year was First Reformed, Paul Schrader movie. Uh, he directed Blue Collar, Blue which Collar. we talked about earlier on the podcast. Friend of the show. <laughs> and this was a very depressing movie. Also, I think getting into sort of the nihilism and isolation of the liberal mindset right now as it's in, you know, in, in this terminal crisis. Stars Ethan Hawke, who plays a priest in this like landmark historic church that nobody goes to anymore. Everyone's going to this mega church, which funds the historic church. And um, one of the few members of his congregation is this guy who's an environmentalist and uh, an environmentalist activist. It turns out he's planning to suicide bomb like the local CEO of the corporation who's like a major polluter or something. Uh, and instead of suicide bombing, he just kills himself. And the priest become very won over to his point of view about the destruction of the planet and decides that he is going to wear the suicide bomb vest and kill this CEO who also funds the megachurch. Spoiler alert, uh, he decides that that is not the right thing to do, and instead he should, you know, sleep with uh, the guy's widow uh, and eat sushi and enjoy the simple and sensual pleasures of life and drink a lot. So he, he goes for, you know, this sort of slow suicide of alcoholism and nihilism. Instead, it sort of gave this dichotomy of, like, if you want to better the world or if you want to fight capitalism that's destroying the world, your only option is, like, either complete nihilism or uh extreme terror like self-sacrificing terrorism those are the only things you've got so so john I'll, I'll throw this to you but what it seems like to me with these three films is that we're at a it seems like we're sort of at a dead end right now or um the culture is telling us that like whatever way that we're moving forward uh in terms of a society or in terms of even action is uh kind of uh i don't know 
impossible at this moment in time. Do you think that this, these, this nihilism we see in these three movies, this social nihilism, can actually be pointing to, I don't know, our understanding that something has to be done and we need to create something better? Or is it just all bad? What, you don't think eating Tide Pods is a constructive response <laughs> to the current state of affairs? Everybody read Lit Crit Guy's piece on the Tide Pod. It's really good, but yeah. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to bring that oh, up. Oh, hell yeah. We could not uh, bring it up. <laughs> um, I mean, broadly speaking, nihilism is a symptom, right? This kind of passive nihilism. Is this is what this is something Nietzsche writes about that passive nihilism is a symptom of broad societal problems, right? That things have gone badly wrong at some level if this is what we're sort of resorting to. And he says that, like, the choice then is that you kind of just accept the slide into this deeply depressing and valueless existence, or you accept it kind of active nihilism which is not just the passive acceptance of what we think we've been told but genuinely questioning what you what we've been told and then like choosing and holding fast to certain values because the the striking thing about what you're saying with first reformed is the is the sort of lack of uh, the ability to conceive of belief in terms other than being terroristic and like belief and the possibility of the future is a kind of long-held leftist principle right we believe that the world can be something other than it is um and so i i hope i hope what they are is um signs of the need to uh one challenge the dominance of the liberal cultural imaginary and produce something better something more constructive something that can exercise the the ghosts and monsters uh and point us towards something better but I sort of worry that maybe, maybe that that, that there isn't there isn't anything other than this mm. coming. Mm. This is why I think it's really important not to cede this ground completely to the right wing, right? Because yeah, in in the current cultural imagination, everyone who believes in something is a scary, creepy Christian cult leader. But like, we believe in something, and we're not. <laughs> scary cult leaders at least you know we are to some people but uh maybe we should try it but like we we rely on you know not just not just being witches but also science right as in the immortal science of uh historical materialism um and i talked a little bit about this with uh jake on pod damn america the other day too but just like the idea that there are some things that pure science and scientific socialism cannot do for people such as ritual such as, I don't know, the ability to reckon with death. Um, Mm -hmm. And like, I feel like there's a kind of power there that maybe we shouldn't be so quick to give up or leave in the past. Yeah, this is totally why I got into into it as as a start, you know, because I was I was always drawn to these kind of darker and macabre aspects of culture. And I'm like, well, what is it about this? You know, what is this that that kind of speaks to me? And it's on one level, it's like a simple catharsis. Right. But on another, you're right. This is this is about uh, death and it's about trauma and it's about just the kind of existential horrors of existing under capitalism. And, you know, there's so many uh, that catharsis is not just uh, the monsters been defeated until they come back for the sequel. But it's about the fact that, you know, we endure, you know, we can get through this. Things could be something other than they are. Maybe one way to square that circle is to make um, community a cornerstone of these beliefs, right? Like community 100%. doesn't have to be the pure province of creepy cults, right? A hundred percent. 
Like this is people go to 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 the movies at midnight for the midnight screening together, right? Horror is a collective thing as well as just a deeply personal thing. Yeah, hundred percent. Where else do you want to see a scary movie but uh, in a dark theater with all of your friends? I don't know if this is a real movement or just uh, the name of somebody who follows me on Twitter, but we should nationalize Movie Pass. Oh, fuck oh hell yeah! yeah. Hell it would yeah. do so much for this country. <laughs> it really would. Talk about bringing the social back, right? Um, real quick, uh, before we close things out, um, John, what do you think about uh, the difference between this um, gothic horror genre, which looks towards the past that we've spoken about, and uh, another whole genre, uh, which is uh, science fiction or speculative uh, fiction? Mm. Do you think that there's anything inherently more progressive in, say, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson or even China Mayville, who kind of mixes up these two things? Or do you think that regardless of whether we're into horror or into sci-fi, the uh, slake moths are all going to eat our psyches anyway? <laughs> well, You'll uh, you have to explain that reference for people who haven't read Pretty Ghost Street Station. Oh Sorry. My God. This episode is so lousy with spoilers. I feel like we need just like one big spoiler alert at the beginning. People get so mad oh. about that stuff. Yeah. If, if you if you follow me on Twitter at all, you will know that I adore China Mieville's Pedido Street Station. Yes. So if you have if you have not read it, come and follow me, and I will yell at you about it. Yes. Um, We've read all three, so we're so with good. you on that. It's so so good. And um, China Mieville wrote this brilliant essay talking about exactly this question. Right. It's long been held in kind of Marxist thought that like sci-fi is progressive and um, genre fiction or the fantastic or the gothic is in some way regressive because uh, sci-fi uh, practices uh, cognitive estrangement. The, the classic essay on this is written um, somewhere in the early 20th century by uh, a writer called Darko Savan. Uh, and he said that it's the cognitive estrangement of science fiction that allows for the potential for political uh, theorizing. And so fantasy is is sort of aggressive because it's emotive and it's bodily and it affects you physically and emotionally. But I don't think that necessarily holds true precisely because we are not um, solely cognitive creatures. Right. We're not solely uh, just uh, perfectly functioning uh, brains in jars. Uh, um, Sam Harris begs to differ, but go on. <laughs> Sam Harris can. No, I'm not gonna. <laughs> no, it's, it's um, fine. I know we know we all know what you're gonna say. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so, like the the value of the fantastic and the horrific and the gothic is that it preserves that as a space in which the kind of physical reaction, the emotional reaction, the affective reaction are not just. Uh, discounted as superfluous you know that's an incredibly important part of what it means to to be a human to to exist um so i think that debate isn't necessarily going to go anywhere um but and i totally get the progressive and sort of left-wing credentials of a lot of speculative fiction but i also think that there should be a place for uh, the dark and the macabre and the monstrous too hell yeah Totally. And another example I just thought of of a movie that used sort of gothic aesthetics as a way to expose the horror of everyday life is Get Out, right? Like that was a, one of the first, I think, racial horror films that sort of flips the script and shows uh, the horror of white supremacy, right? Uh, that's one of the next that's one of the next things I want to I want to look at is um, something that's going to happen towards the end of the book. I'm writing about this is going to be a long section on. Uh, racialized horror and the ways in which uh, I think 
get out is the start of something really promising. Very cool. Well, we all look forward to that, and we will make sure that every single one of our patrons and listeners, and we do rely on your support, by the way, so you can subscribe at patreon.com slash theantifada, but they should all also follow the Lit Crit guy and definitely look for his book coming out soon. Jamie, did you want to close us out with our rah-rah-go-go uh, call-to-arms uh, section? Uh, sure. Go for it. Yeah, so uh, Marx famously described the working class movement to abolish the present state of things as the dream of storming the heavens. So with all of these monstrous figures like zombies and vampires uh, weighing like a nightmare on the brains of the living, is it fair to say that we need to break out the torches and pitchforks again and storm the vampire castle? Are these zombies and werewolves and vampires going to be just like more soldiers in our proletarian army for revolution? Um, Protracted monsters war. <laughs> exactly. And what sort of practical activity can arise out of a gothic Marxist analysis? Uh... What can arise? Do we need to do we need to take to the uh, take to the castle with with flaming torches? <laughs> uh, maybe, 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 maybe Met we metaphorically, do. Metaphorically, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Met- metaphorically. Wait, in Fisher, uh, is isn't the vampire castle filled with SJWs? Or am I? <laughs> oh no! There's a different vampire castle we were talking. Okay. That is a that is a different vampire castle. <laughs> that is a maybe. whole other can of vampires right there, folks. <laughs> uh, but what I would say is this: what I would say is that in a world where uh, the kind of spectral forces of capital uh, can disinherit us, can can throw us out of our homes, and can uh, deprive us of, of the basic rights to life that we all should hold. I think what's important is that any kind of broad socialist coalition looks beyond just the strictly uh, material science of uh, uh, historical materialism not discounting it, but I think what's important is that that socialist coalition must include those who have been made monstrous, right? We've got to stand with those that capitalism relentlessly monsters. Hell yeah. And remember that uh, solidarity doesn't just extend to those that look like we don't have solidarity with one another because of our commonality. We have solidarity with one another because of our differences, because no matter where we are, no matter what we've gone through, no matter what we might think about one another, we've all been through the same horrific encounter with the capitalist machine. So if there is going to be a uh, socialist coalition, it better be uh, one with a place for monsters. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. And you know what? They'll probably be an asset to us when we're fighting the rev, you know? Maybe we'll get some, like, giants in the mix. Maybe we'll get <laughs> no, some, like, yes. shape-shifting Which, mages. The rev, is, the rev is going to be one big monster mash. <laughs> Bring your 24-sided die. It's going to be great. It's going to be a graveyard smash. 